So we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. We began a year ago, the summer of 2019, and then we picked it up again. And this is part nine of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So we've looked at chapter five, which is all about relationships. And then um, in the previous message, we looked at the first part of chapter six, which is about living righteously. And in if you remember that Jesus um, identified three spiritual practices. One was giving to the needy, and then praying and fasting. And he he identified that, um, and and I, I think he just he he pulled those out of all the spiritual practices because they're important, but they're also a priority. And the Pharisees had turned them into a religious practice to please men, to show off instead of pleasing God. And so that's what we looked at the previous message. And now Jesus transitions into uh, from those religious practices to a focus on um, this earthly life and the things that we that we need, but that we cannot love and truly be in relationship with him. So he, we're going to, we're going to look at the scripture here on, in um, Matthew chapter six, and we'll begin with verse 19 here in just a moment. Um, so, but before we do that, I want you to, I want you to get this picture in your mind because it's so important that we understand and really buy into that this life is the beginning. Um, as we talked about several weeks ago, it's the beginning of the life that is really life. When Jesus returns and, and, and God's full, perfect kingdom is reestablished. And so this is the journey. This is the beginning. This is the preface to that life. And if we buy into that, if we really see it that way, we will identify it as the journey rather than as the focus. So here's the picture. Back in pioneer days, people would um, leave the, the civilized land and they would get into a Conestoga wagon and they would take a trip that would take them months to go to a place where they believed was a better life. So imagine that you are back there and you're living on the East Coast and you get the message that a billionaire uncle has sent you the invitation to come <clears throat> to the West Coast where he has created this incredible life. He has a mansion, he has property, he has a um, large bank account. <clears throat> and in this message he says, I don't have any relatives except for you. If you will come out here, then I will give you all of this. But you need to make the journey. Now, and he gave some very specific instructions. You are to travel with only what you need for the trip. Because when you get to the destination, when you get to his home, you'll have all you need. And he, secondly, he says, I've got... Um, Agents that are incognito that will be stationed at different places on the trip, on the, on the route that you will travel, and they will be watching. And at any point along the way where they see that you have a need, you will be provided with what you need. And then thirdly, on this trip, 
You are to help the fellow travelers that are with you in any way possible. Because the trip is not just about you, it's about you helping other people as well. So those are the instructions. The first question that would come to my mind is, what does it mean to travel with only what is necessary? Because if you're traveling in a Conestoga wagon, there's a limited amount that you can take. If we go back in history, though, we discover that people who made that trip oftentimes would try to take so much of what they had that they would overtax the, the wagon itself and the wagon would end up breaking down along the way because of the extra weight that was there. I mean, they would take pianos and, um, and trunks of heirlooms and, and things that were precious to them that they didn't want to let go of. It would also overtax the animals, the, the mules or the oxen, and, and sometimes cause them to break down or wear out. Sometimes they, it would slow them down to the place where they would be all alone and they would be robbed along the way. And that which they had tried so much to carry with them would be stolen. Sometimes what they would take along the way, they would open up when they got to their destination and discover it had rotted. Moths had gotten in and destroyed the clothing that, they, that was so precious to them. Things had rusted because of, of the dampness or, or had rotted because of the dryness. So that what they tried to take would not eventually make it to the end of the journey. So what is it that qualifies for only what we need when we're thinking about our journey? If this really is the beginning, and this is the journey towards heaven, what is it that qualifies? So let's talk about some often ignored realities about earthly stuff, and yet these realities are eternally important, not just important in this life, but important in the next. Let's read, uh, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. We'll read the whole passage and then we'll come back and look at it uh, specifically. So Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light you, in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Often ignored realities about earthly stuff that are eternally important. Reality number one is that you choose the treasure that you collect. You choose the treasure that you collect. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. And so we all choose treasures. It's not that we don't choose treasures. He's not saying don't choose any treasures. 
The reality is that we all choose certain treasures collect that we collect. Um, literally, when he says, do not lay up treasures for yourself on earth, he's, he says, treasure not up your treasures. That's the literal translation. Don't hold on to this earthly stuff. Don't gather the stuff that's on earth. This would be a shock, once again, to the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and the people, because they had great wealth. And if we go all the way back to Job, we find this underlying belief that uh, wealth was the, the sign of affirmation of God. It was how you knew whether you were really being pleasing to God or not, is that the more, and the more wealth you had, the more pleasing you were. And so the Pharisees had, had really twisted and distorted that even further as they gained more and more wealth on earth. And so they would be shocked, the disciples would be shocked, everybody would be kind of staring with their mouths open saying, what are you talking about? And he, and he goes on, do not gather up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And so one of the, the treasures that they had in that, that was fine cloth. Sometimes it was embroidered, sometimes it was, it was just dyed in, um, um, in ways that made it very, very valuable. And then, um, then rust and uh, uh, that which would rust, so any kind of precious metals, or where thieves can break in and steal. And so he says, all of these things are perishable and transient. So I put in your outline, the earthly treasure. Earthly treasure is temporary and easily lost. Um, I often think about people who lose their homes to fire. And I think of all the things that I've collected over the years that aren't valuable to anybody else, but they're valuable to me. And yet, it can be lost just like that, just like that, or the floods. Um, and so he says, and so if we go back to that pioneer journey, um, taking, he's talking about taking along stuff that will, that will not last, stuff that will easily be destroyed, stuff that will be easily stolen. And then, um, and, and so earthly treasure is that which is temporary and easily lost, and it's chosen by the stuff that we get pleasing ourselves. Stuff that we like to hold on to. Stuff in this earthly realm. Um, I heard this story. A rich man was near death. And he was grieved because he had worked so hard and he had gained such riches and, and he hated to part with them. The rich man pleaded with God and was allowed by God to bring one bag. Overjoyed, he loaded his suitcase full of gold bars. Finally, he died, and upon arrival in heaven, he was checking in and was told by Peter that the bag would not be allowed. He insisted that he had permission. Things were checked on, and it was found that, indeed, he did have approval from God to take one bag. When the bag was opened to see what was so needed by the man, and I can just imagine that the angels were kind of gathered and around going, what? this must be really, really important. And Peter looked in the bag and exclaimed, you brought pavement? <laughs> because the streets up here are made of gold. 
And that's the, and so this earthly treasure that we think is so valuable, once we get to our destination, if we really believe this is a journey and we're just living in the beginning, have you ever thought of what makes something valuable? I mean, who who is sitting around one day saying, you know, I think that shiny gold stuff is is the most valuable precious metal. Or what makes, you know, somebody found a diamond and, and they looked at it and goes, that's really pretty. I think we'll charge a lot of money for this. And someday they'll make rings out of it and we'll make lots of money. What makes something valuable? Because a lot of people want it. Because of the demand of this earthly nature that we have. And so it's not really valuable. When we get to heaven, I mean, and are other streets really going to be made of gold? I think that's an analogy of saying the most precious thing that you have here on earth is going to be just something you walk on because you can't even imagine. So he says, we are supposed to lay up for ourselves treasures. Verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So you have a choice. We all choose the treasure. We all collect treasure. It's just a matter of what treasure we're going to collect. So these heavenly treasures, he says, are those things that are eternal and secure. It's kind of like um, uh, on that pioneer journey, if we said, okay, I'm going to sell everything I got and I'm going to convert that into money in a bank and then I'm going to have it wire it all the way to the West Coast, so that when I get there, it'll be there. And there's no danger of it being stolen or destroyed or rotting away. That's what he's talking about. We're supposed to collect treasures, but not here on earth. And so how do we do that? By choosing to follow Christ. Eternal treasures are gathered in heaven as we choose to follow Christ. And, and that is a lot of what he talks about in the whole Sermon on the Mount. How, how do we gather those treasures? Well, if you boil it down to Jesus' greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, in actions of the will. Well, that gathers up treasure. You're sending up treasures ahead. When we obey God, we are, we are sending up treasures ahead. So once we begin to understand this in terms of heavenly versus earthly, it makes all the sense in the world. Um, and as we go into the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, I put there in your outline for you. Um, we, we see ongoing encouragement to do exactly the same. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or proud or focused on themselves, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So as we're on this journey, God has agents along the way to provide for us at the point that we need. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to plan for it. God will take care of us. They are to do good, to be rich in good deeds or good works, and to be generous and ready to share. And later he goes on, in this way they will store up for the life that is really life. 
So, um, the so if the the traveler as you're as you're picturing yourself as that traveler, you're on your way to that destination, and you're using what you have to serve by obeying the instructions and to serve people along the way. What is what? Uh, so this is kind of a sidebar. So. We are to love God with all our hearts, soul, minds, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the implication is to use the things that we have for the people in our lives. So what is it? What is what is the earthly possession? What are earthly possessions for? To you know, so that we have food, clothing, and all that. But also so that we can love other people. So that we can, going back to Matthew chapter five, we can be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, pointing people to Jesus. Luke chapter 16, verse 9, says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Unrighteous doesn't mean it's bad. It just means that's not how you you make yourself right with God. Make friends for yourself with means of wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So we're supposed to use what we have to help other people. Use what we have to help other people. Number two, the treasure you collect determines what you love. So you choose treasure. Everybody chooses some kind of treasure to collect. And then the treasure that you collect determines what you love. Let's take a look at that. Um, Martin Luther said, what a man loves, that is his God. For he carries it in his heart. He goes about with it night and day. He sleeps and wakes with it. Be what it may, wealth or self, pleasure or renown. That's another way of saying, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is. So what you treasure, the treasure that you collect, the things that you focus on. So if you're focused on earthly things, that's where your heart will be. That's where you, that's what you will love. If you're focused on heavenly treasure, doing what God wants us to do, then our hearts will belong to heaven. Whatever we make our treasure gains possession of our heart. And that, that kind of seems a little upside down, doesn't it? It seems like what we love is what we'll collect, and that's true. But what we collect, what we put our effort into, is our, where our attention is going to go. The location of what you value most is the, where the, is the location of your heart. And you don't have to have a lot. You know, sometimes people think, well, only the wealthy are in love with material possessions. I've met some of the people who lacked it the most were enamored with it and focused on it the most. So it's not about whether you have a lot or a little. It's about where your, your focus is, where your heart is. Um, <clears throat> so back to the frontier. You're on the trail. You've loaded your Conestoga wagon. You've tried to reduce everything to the essentials of what, only what you'll need. And a moment comes on the trail when a fellow traveler is injured seriously. And the person is bleeding profusely from their leg. And, and so you go to your wagon and you start rummaging through the stuff and, and you've reduced what you have to the bare minimum. So all you have 
to put a tourniquet on the man's leg is an heirloom precious scarf that you got from and it's been passed down in your family. It's all you've got. You have no other option. Now what do you do? Your billionaire uncle is going to have all that you need, but he's not going to have another heirloom scarf. What do you do? What's of highest value? If we are collecting eternal values and people are important, then you probably shed a few tears over that scarf. But you'll take that scarf and you'll save the person's life. Because nothing on earth is as valuable as what God says is valuable. That's so hard. That's hard. Those are hard, hard choices. But wherever our focus is, that's where we are value. Now, we've probably all seen people who have held on to treasures at the loss of something that was of more value in their life, haven't we? Relationships, people, um, health. Because where our treasures, what we focus on, what we collect, is what we will come to love. <clears throat> in Luke chapter 12, <clears throat> excuse me, turn, turn your Bibles there. Or, or did I put it in your outline? Yeah, it's in the outline. So Jesus told this parable that um, illustrates this reality very well. Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21. Jesus told them, them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. That should have been a red flag. I mean, that should have been a tip-off. I mean, how many barns of stuff do you need, really? <laughs> but that's an indicator. And that, right there, if we stopped right there, we see he, he was collecting earthly things because his heart was on earthly things. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool. And fool means doing the opposite of what God wants you to do. That's foolish. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You see, we're all collecting something, and what we do reveals our hearts. What we do in those moments reveals our hearts. Someone is, uh, one of the commentators said, obvious though this maxim may be, that where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Multitudes who profess to bow to the teaching of Christ have, have in practicality disregarded it. Amen? Amen? When push comes to shove, um, and I and I and I think in, in you know there there are a lot of these realities in Scripture where um, we almost take them as suggestions rather than as truths, as we will see next week when we talk about worry. So reality number one: you choose the treasure you collect. Everybody collects some kind of treasure. Number two: the treasure you collect determines what you love, and then number three: what you love determines your spiritual life or death which reveals just how important 
it is. A young man had an accident while driving his car. Spectacular accident. When the policeman arrived, he found the young man standing near his car, mumbling. As the officer approached him, he overheard the young man saying, Oh, my BMW. Oh, my BMW. Oh, my BMW. Looking at the young man, the policeman said, Are you crazy? Look at the condition of your arm. Your left arm is almost completely amputated. The young man looked down and said, Oh, my Rolex. Oh, my Rolex. Oh, my Rolex. (laughs) What you love determines life and death spiritually and sometimes physically as well. And, and we laugh at that because it's so ridiculous, and yet it's often so true. Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. And I used to read that scripture and go, what? <laughs> because Jesus is using metaphors that that we don't easily get. So here, here's what he's saying. He so, so he says in verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. The eye represents what you focus on. It's um, it, it, and what we focus on, what we see. Um, and so, and the lamp then, so the eye is the lamp of the body, then the eye determines what we notice, what we pay attention to, um, and what enters our body. So uh, the eye looks and it's the lamp. It's, it's what comes in, what we see, what we understand, um, how, we, how we live in this life, how we function in this life. What we focus on determines how we see. So two people can see the same thing, look at the same thing, but according to what they're what they they're living for, will will notice different things. So Sheila and I are very different, which I've discovered that that's one of God's cosmic tricks in getting people to marry. <laughs> Opposites really do attract, and then they get married and they repel. (laughs) Or they integrate. And so Sheila and I can be walking someplace, and as we're walking through, I will look at the exact same scene. And I will notice the people that are there. I'll notice big picture stuff. I'll notice, and Sheila will see the dogs, the flowers. She'll, she'll notice colors. And, and as we're walking away from that scene, she'll say, did you notice the brown dog that was sitting by the flower bed? And I'm saying, there was a flower bed? <laughs> and there was a dog? Because I didn't see it. We notice the things that grab our attention according to what we value, what, what we like. And so that's what he's saying here is the eye represents what we focus on and the lamp is, is explaining what we, um, 
what we understand as we're looking at it. And then the light, the, so then he goes on to say, but if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. The light is Christ. If your eye is healthy, you're looking at the things in the heavenly realm. You're looking at the things at the destination. If you're paying attention to the things that really matter in this life, then the light of Christ, there will be the light of Christ in your heart, in your life, where you walk. But it, then he goes on, but if your eye is bad, because you're looking at the things of earth, your whole body will be full of darkness. It will be noticing the things that don't matter, and you will be fooling yourself. That's why he says blind. You will be blind. It will be dark, because it's, it's separated from God. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So, and, and so let's look at that for a second. The light in you is darkness means that we believe that we're doing what is right when actually we're living in sin and separation from God. So the Pharisees were part of the audience that Jesus was talking to. And that's what had happened to the Pharisees. They had gotten so focused on the things of this earth, and yet they believed they were right with God. They believed that they were the teachers of God because they held the positions of, of teachers in the nation of Israel. They were the ones that people were supposed to look up to. They had spent years and years studying the Old Testament scripture and, and, and teaching it. And yet, because they were focused on the things of this world, they didn't even notice Jesus when he showed up. They, the light, and, and, and so this phrase is one of the things that, that, um, that I struggle with. If the light within you is darkness, how deep the darkness is. If what you think you see as true and spiritual and of God is exactly the opposite, how great the darkness is, how tragic it is. Now, there aren't really people like that, are there? American Christianity is filled with people who think they know the truth, but they've left it behind. And when you talk with them, they can't, they're so blind, they can't even see that they're blind. They think they're right, and they'll argue to death with you about what the truth is. And that was the case for the Pharisees. It, it's saddest when we, when we think we know the truth, but we don't. When we think we know what's right, but we don't. I mean, it's like, how can you be a Michigan fan when Ohio State is right there to root for how can you even think about that? How can you ever want anchovies on a pizza when black olives are right there? Everybody knows. I mean, everybody knows black olives are the best thing to put on pizza. See, the saddest part of all is when we believe one thing and we believe it to be true and we can't even fathom that we might be wrong. That's why it's so important for us to be humble when it comes to all things. Um, and, and it's interesting to me because the people who really are following Jesus are the ones who are willing to listen to other people and, and listen to them, give them the respect of listening, even though they're wrong. The people that are blind are the ones that don't even want to hear anything else. Matthew chapter 15, 14 Jesus says this about those Pharisees. He says, leave them alone. 
They are blind guides. They don't even know they're leading in the wrong way. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. It's going to be a very, very sad, sad day for so many who think they're right with God when Jesus returns. So sad. And it breaks my heart because I care about those people. But I know that they're wrong. And someday when Jesus returns, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And and uh, Jesus told another parable where they'll say, well, but look at all the good stuff that we did. And Jesus says, I never knew you. It's going to be a sad, sad day. It's not going to be a happy day. It's going to be a sad day for them. So number one, the first reality is you choose the treasure you collect. Number two, the, the treasure you collect determines what you love. Number three, what you love determines your spiritual life or death, which is why it's so important. Then number four, with God, your choice is all or nothing. It's all or nothing. You can't have part of God and part of the world. And a lot of people try to, to do that. And it, there's just this exclu exclusivity, this either or nature to following God. And it's not unusual. Um, for instance, you know, when I introduce myself speaking other places, um, I'll, I'll say I have four children, six grandchildren, going on seven grandchildren, and I'm the husband of but one wife. And my wife really likes it that way. <laughs> And, and people laugh. They, they just kind of chuckle because, well, of course. And it had better stay that way, right? You know, if I ever went home one day and said, Sheila, you know, I've been thinking about our marriage. You know, we've been married 40 years. And, you know, I, I love you a lot. And I, I love you most. But, you know, I, every once in a while I like to date this other woman. <laughs> I don't know if it would be a paring knife or a hatchet. <laughs> but there's not one moment she would put up with that. And nor should she. So why do we think it's strange that we would give God part of ourselves, but hold on to earthly stuff as well? It's no mistake that God makes that same analogy, that he, we are the bride of Christ because we ha he has exclusivity to us. So it's either or. Verse 24, Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. He says there's, you can't serve two masters. You, there, there comes a point where you have to choose. There's going to be a choice of, um, of loyalty. Um, and, and it's very interesting. I watch this as I've counseled with people and and dealt with people in other places. And if a couple, a husband and wife are having struggles, they'll work at it, they'll work at it, they'll work at it, they'll work at it. And then every once in a while, one of them will, will come in and they, they've stopped working on it. And I've learned after 40 years of, of ministry that 95% of the time or more, they've found somebody else because you can't, you can't work on your marriage and work on a, uh, an outside relationship at the same time. And you can, and I, you, I can just see it. There's a break when your loyalty no longer is to working on the marriage. 
There's an exclusivity. You cannot serve God and money, he says. <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, uh, grew up out in the in the country, moved out there when I was eight years old, six and a half acres, and we had horses for a while. It was my job to take care of the horses. So every day I had to cross the fence, go down to this little barn that we had, feed them some oats, feed them some hay, make sure there was water in the trough. In order to keep the horses in, we had an electric fence, electric barbed wire that was on top of the fence. It wasn't the whole fence. It was just electric barbed wire that, that ringed the whole, the whole field. And at eight and a half, nine years old, I had to get across that fence and, bar, and the electric barbed wire in order to get into the field to take care of the horses. And I had these little legs, and the way to get from one side into the field was what they called a stile. as a two-sided ladder that you had to climb and get over. And with my little legs, it was an acrobatic feat because I would climb both side towards the house, and when I would get to the top, I would kind of put one leg over, and then I would jump because if I didn't, I wasn't tall enough to avoid the electric barbed wire. <laughs> and so I had to kind of hop in order to get to the other side and not touch it. And it didn't always work. <laughs> Which might explain a lot of things about me today. Zapped every once in a while. To try to live with one foot in the world and one foot in heaven to serve two masters would be like standing with those little legs on both sides of that style at the same time. It doesn't work. You just get zapped. And, some, and, and in order to, to prevent getting zapped, you got to choose one way or the other. Jesus says, we cannot serve two masters. It's impossible. And yet, it's so tempting to try to do that. We cannot serve two masters. So imagine yourself on that journey and you get about halfway there and you begin to run out of stuff and you come to a town and um, um, there's a, the mayor of the town comes to you and say, you know, I heard you're on this great trip. And I tell you what, um, if you'll just stay here, you've got some skills that we could use in our town. If you'll just stay here, we'll give you... Um, you know, $1,000 a month for the rest of your life. Very tempting, isn't it? Don't have to make the rest of that journey. Don't have to worry about all those other travelers. Don't have to worry about making that trip. Don't have to worry about winter coming. We can just stay here. Just stay here. Nope. You got to choose one or the other. You either accept the $1,000 a month or the billionaire's offer on the West Coast. You cannot serve both. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle John, after listening to Jesus, following Jesus, and, and living in tune with the Holy Spirit for many, many decades, he, by the power of the Holy Spirit, writes this. Do not love the world or the things of the world. You cannot serve two masters. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now that's, that's a, a, um, a sobering statement. 
If you love the things of this world, if you're concentrating on the things of this world, by not doing what God wants you to do and holding on the stuff that's here, in little ways or big ways, he says, the love of the Father is not in him. You cannot have God and still love the world more. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. In the reality, this trip from the East Coast to the West Coast, matter of months, maybe three or four months. But once you get to the West Coast, you can live in that mansion with the billionaire's money and property for the rest of your life, for the decades of the future of your life. You see, this journey is not going to last forever. This, this is the beginning. It's just a short period of time. And whatever sacrifice it takes in order to make the journey, in order to get to the destination is worth it because this is passing away. You can hold on to it, but you get to heaven, it's just pavement. He says, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's such a hard shift. And as we've talked about right side up, upside down, that's really what it is. It's such a hard shift to turn it because the decisions that we have to make between the things of this world and the things of God are usually small decisions. They're not the huge ones. Do I use the scarf to help a person? Do I sacrifice that? Do I let go of the little stuff in order to serve God? So what are the situations that might be most challenging to you in this regard? I think we, um, we have a tendency in our culture not to really take this whole idea of God or this earth, the ex exclusivity, seriously. And we, we, we play with it, and we think we can have both and, and, and we mess around with, with the, the little stuff in this life. We don't take God seriously. So is it any wonder that we see so few Christians in this affluent society that we live in with the real joy of abundant living, with the real, with, with the real sense of, yeah, I love Jesus and, and God is, is so good and it's wonderful. Is it, it, is it you know, we, we've, we've uh, looked at many of the hymns and, and the people that wrote the hymns, Fanny Crosby, who was blind, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who died at a young age because he was willing to sacrifice himself. Corey Ten Boom, who was willing to be in a concentration camp and her father willing to die in order to save the Jews. We've looked at all these people and they all had this incredible joy because they have made the choice and they continue to make that choice every day. If we want the abundant joy, if we want that satisfaction and contentment, it's there for us. But we have to cut ties and just use what we have in this world to serve God, love people. Would you bow your heads? As we were talking today, were there, were there things that came to mind? Any place where the Holy Spirit may have put his finger on some way that you're holding on to things in this world? Ways that maybe you're collecting earthly treasures? Something that you wouldn't want to let go of, even if he asked you to.
if he put his finger on something, what, what is it that he wants you to do about it? What's he saying to you? What does he want you to do? In that imaginary picture that I gave us, the billionaire uncle has far more than anything we can imagine offered. And yet sometimes we get so frustrated in this journey that is sometimes so very hard that we're willing to sacrifice that which is in the next life, in the abundance that God offers for the little things here. So if, he, if, if he's putting your, his finger on anything, would you just in this moment say, God, okay, I, I, give it, I give it to you. It's yours. I'm not holding on to it. I want you more than anything else. And then ask him specifically to show you what he wants you to do. Lord, how do you want me to handle this? How do you want me to live differently? And then say to him, I want your joy. I want your satisfaction. I want your contentment. Because I know deep inside of me, that's the most precious thing. Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us to hear your voice on this. An important issue, God, we know. Jesus took time in the, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount to talk about this specific issue because it's hard. And so I pray that you would guide us very, very clearly, very, very specifically to collect the kind of treasure that really lasts. To obey you no matter what it takes. I pray your spirit would speak to us, heart, mind, soul. And guide us step by step by step to live the, the kind of life you want us to with our stuff. So that when we get to heaven, there'll be immense treasure that's already there because of the way we lived here. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.